Luke chapter 23, verse 50, and we are going to be going into chapter 24 today. We are at the very end of Luke. We have this week and two more weeks, and we will have then preached through the entire gospel of Luke. We will end on Christmas Eve, and just so you know, as we begin uh, the new year, uh, we're going to begin in the book of Daniel. Uh, we're beginning the year in Daniel, and we're ending the year in Revelation, uh, so we're just those two bookends, uh, so if you want to go ahead and begin reading and preparing, I would urge you to uh, read through Daniel, read through it uh, several times before we get to uh, January, as in preparation, uh, but today the title is, Why Do You Seek the Living Among the Dead? Uh, we're looking at the resurrection, and as we, we talked about last week, I, I like where we're at at Christmas, because we're often not here. We often look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew or Mark, and we look at the birth narratives, which, which are great. But what I love here is just because of where we are, it's making us intentionally remember the baby boy that was born in a stable is the Savior who came to die on a cross. Jesus came on a mission. We see that clearly as we go through the Gospels, and especially now where we're at the end. Uh, we're looking at the resurrection. If this text is not here, if it's not in the Bible, if there is no resurrection, then you know there's no gospel, right? We would not be here. We would not be here this Sunday morning. You would be doing something else if this text is not here. And it's because of this text, because it is here, because Jesus has risen we do have hope, and that's what we're going to look at today. So I want to encourage you to stand. Uh, we stand at the reading of God's Word. We do so because His Word comes to us inspired by the very authority of God, and we do this to then honor our Lord and Savior and our King. Chapter 23, verse 50, we'll begin. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in a stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But they went in. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the leaven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you for your inspired word. And now I ask that, Lord, as your spirit has inspired it, that now your same spirit would illuminate the truth of your word in our hearts. May we see the glory of this text that your son has risen from the grave, that he is the son of man, that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is hope, there is a new creation that you will be forming when you return. God, we praise you for this. God, it is because of the resurrection we are here today. It is because of the resurrection we know that you have defeated sin, death, and Satan. May your word here today, your text, may it strengthen our faith. May it bolden us today, God. We thank you for this text. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, I have three sections that we're just kind of going to walk through. We have the, the resurrection myth is where we're going to begin. Then we'll look at resurrection proof and the resurrection foretold. Uh, Many of you might have heard or known uh, Richard Dawkins, a renowned atheist and scientist, biologist, has written many, many books uh, trying to disprove God. One of them called The God Delusion, where he tries to show the very foolishness of religion. He believes the resurrection story is along the same believability um, as Jack and the Beanstalk. That's how he places it in comparison. He says it's a fairy tale, it's a children's myth, it's inconceivable. Now there's not as many, I think, atheists that would respond as, um, as, as, anima- as, uh, as, as clear or with great clarity and strength that Dawkins does, but there are many people who hold the same view. There's no resurrection. Jesus didn't rise. It's, it's foolish to believe in a resurrected Messiah. They think it's a hoax, uh, something like that. So what would you say to someone? They say, well, well, that's dumb to believe Jesus has risen from the grave. How would you respond? What would you do? You could perhaps ask them, well, what alternative theories might there be? And you could say, well, one, Jesus did not merely die, but he came close to death. Maybe that's what happened. And so this idea would say Jesus was, was tortured, he was almost killed on the cross, and they thought he was dead, but they placed him in the tomb. And then after a couple days, uh, he got up, and in his tortured state, found enough strength to push away the large rock, overcome the special force unit that was outside guarding the tomb, and then he escapes. That would be one theory that could be plausible. You could say, well, Jesus did actually die, But in order to trick everyone, the disciples made up of fishermen and tax collectors and stuff. They came, overpowered the trained soldiers that were guarding the tomb. They moved the rock. They grabbed the body, although it appears that they left the linen shroud, so they took him naked. And then they hid the body somewhere. And then just to propagate the hoax, they decided that they would preach the resurrection to the point of torture and death. So that would be another plausible possibility or you could say the women went to the wrong tomb and this tomb just there was a rock opened by it and they just said wow wow Jesus must have risen which then according to Luke's gospel because they were there and they saw where he was laid and how he was laid um, either they're dumb they're ignorant they need their maple their apple 
MapQuest or Google Maps, and they needed that to be able to find Jesus, and because they didn't have that, they could not come back and find Jesus. So those are possible theories, some of the more popular theories that are presented um, other than believing that Jesus has risen from the grave. Or you could possibly say, well, what is some of the first century understanding of resurrection? Like, like, what were people thinking in the first century about resurrections? Was this something that was hitting the Twitter feeds and Facebook? And so, all of a sudden, the disciples are looking, man, if we write a book about this and we die for this, we can make a bestseller. Well, the Greco-Roman thought, well, Tim Keller, he writes a book, The Reason for God. And in this book... He writes, the Greco-Roman thought would not have conceived of a resurrection. They thought the soul and the spirit were good, but the physical, the material things of this world were defiled, weak, and corrupt. To them, salvation was liberation from the body. So any type of reincarnation into a physical body, any type of resurrection, um, would be seen as a form of bondage and thus undesirable and so to the greco-roman thought having a resurrected person was not only undesirable but they viewed it as impossible and it was not something they were looking forward to at all so the greco-roman the dominant culture of the first century was not thinking a resurrection at all now jewish thought was a little different the greeks saw the material material world as bad but the jewish thought was that the material, the physical things were good. Death was not seen as liberation from the material world, but was seen as a tragedy. And so in Jesus' day, the idea of a resurrection was hoped for, and the idea was that one day all of God's righteous, holy people would be resurrected to no longer experience suffering and death. But they did not have a category for one person rising from the grave, while everyone else still remained in their, uh, in their physical state under the suffering of this world. So they had a mass resurrection view that God will rise all of his people at once. They had no idea of a resurrected Messiah, and then as people die, we would go to heaven or upon Jesus' return, as we believe that we will all be risen from the grave and be with Jesus. So what this means is that the worldview, the Greco-Roman and the Jewish thinking, neither one of them would be advocating for some sort of resurrected Messiah. Neither one of them was looking for this. This was not what was on the minds of the, of the Romans, of the Greeks, of the Jews. And so this would have been extremely anti-cultural at this time. Now, most people think, and, and this is neat, Tim Keller writes, most people believe that when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, the burden of proof is on believers to give the evidence that it happened. Do you ever feel like that? Someone asks you, and you're like, well, you got to bring all the evidence. But Tim Keller writes, that's not completely true. The resurrection also puts a burden of proof on non-believers. It's not simply Enough to say, well, Jesus did not rise from the dead. He says, if you want to deny the resurrection, what is your historical, feasible, alternative explanation for the birth of the church? And I think he makes a good case there. So as Christians, we need to be prepared to give answers, but we can also feel free to turn the question back and ask them, well, how do you explain the birth of the church? That for over 2,000 years, people have been preaching a resurrected Messiah. 
what would be the other theory? Now, we could argue other ways to maybe navigate the question of how do you explain the resurrection, but I think one of the best things that we can ever do is take someone to Scripture. We will not argue, one, argue anyone to the faith. We will not bully anyone into the faith. The best thing that we can ever do is take them to the inspired Word of God, read the Word with them, and pray that God, through His Holy Spirit, will open up their eyes, that by faith they would see the beautiful truth of the resurrection, the reason that we are here today. And so that's what I want us to do. I want us to look at what is some of this resurrection proof that we have here in our text. And so to do that, I want to begin by just reminding us. We started. So this series in Luke, remember, we've kind of gone off and on. Uh, and we started back in, I think, 2013. We've done close to 60 sermons in the book of Luke. It's a really big book. So it took a long time to come through here. And so if you remember, might not, it's a long time ago, all the way back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Do you remember that first sermon? Nope, none of you do. That's okay. Um, you can just nod your head. It makes me feel good. Uh, Luke writes the purpose of the, the gospel that he writes. And he says... It seemed good to me, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So here's Luke's goal. He says, I want to write this gospel to bring, uh, to show the reliability of the truth of the gospel for Theophilus, and also for you and I today. So he's writing this to strengthen our faith. He's writing this gospel message to show us the truth of the gospel. He's looked at all the evidence. And so as he writes this gospel, he's saying, I want to convince you, Theophilus, of what you have heard is true. And so that is why he has chosen to say the very things that he has, that he has said in this gospel. And so let's look. Um, today we're going to look at the people that he involves, and then we're going to look at the perspective of Jesus' followers. So that's how we're, going to, how, we're, how we're going to start. So we begin with people. We have Joseph uh, from Arimathea. Look at verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. And it's this man that he goes and asks for uh, the body of Jesus, and he goes to Pilate. Now notice, this is Joseph. Where is he from? From Arimathea. What's he do? Well, he's on the council of the Sanhedrin. And so if, if I had a friend that was visiting Lacey, where we live, and I wanted him to meet my friend John, and I said, well, John lives in Lacey. He's on the city council. He lives in this neighborhood, and he lives on this street. That would probably be enough evidence, enough, enough facts for my friend to be able to do some sort of investigation and come easily to find my friend John if I gave those details. That's what Luke's doing here. He's not writing a fictitious account. He's saying, there's a guy named Joseph. He's from Arimathea, and, and he's on the Sanhedrin. You can go check it. He's writing it. So in the first century, if there's any doubt, go ask him. Go talk to Joseph. Go talk to his family. Go talk to his friends. Ask him if he actually went to Pilate. Remember, if this is not true, it would be easily disproven within the first century. Now, the fact that, Jesus, that Joseph is not one of the original 12 disciples also gives additional support for the resurrection. Think about it. If 
one of Jesus' disciples went and buried the body of Jesus, we might say, well, they hid the body, right? But we are specifically told that this man, he did not consent to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God, but he had not publicly made known his faith at this moment. It's now after he has died that now he has made known his faith. He's going to Pilate. He's revealing that he's a follower of Jesus. And he goes and buries Jesus. So this is an act of compassion, not conspiracy. Now the second person that we're given is Pilate. Now Luke doesn't say much about Pilate. In fact, really he only shows up in I think verse 52. But what he says is significant. He says, he asked Pilate, or Pilate releases the body. Now this is strange in the first century. The normal practice of anyone who was crucified was to leave them up on the cross that the birds would come and, and, and eat their bodies. They'd be gorged by the birds and their bodies would slowly decay. And it was a gruesome way for Rome to say, this is what happens if you cross Rome. If you rebel against us, we'll put you on a stick as a display to show that we will defeat you and overcome you. And so the very fact that the body was released was very strange, was very unique, and very verifiable. Jesus' body was not stolen off the cross. It was not taken by the disciples at night. But Pilate gave it to Joseph. And what we also see is Nicodemus. We see that in one of the other accounts. And what we're told in Mark is that before he releases the body, Pilate checks with one of the centurions, one of the soldiers, and he says, go make sure the body is dead. So he goes, Jesus is dead, he reports back, and only upon hearing that Jesus is dead, he then gives the body over to Joseph. Again, remember, these truths, these, these facts that are given, would have all been verifiable in the first century. People could go back and ask questions of any single one of them. And if they were false, they would have been proven false. Now let's look at the women. Now it's worth noting that Luke mentions women. And if you were here last week and, and now this week, you see that women are mentioned a great deal. And that's a little strange in the first century. Look back at chapter 23, verse 27. This is from last week. It says, There followed him, this is following Jesus, this is him going to the cross, a great multitude of the people and of women. He specifically mentions there's women following Jesus. And then in uh, chapter 23, verse 28, Jesus turns and speaks to the women. Of all the people, he turns and speaks to them. And then in verse 55, we are told, this is our text today, that the women specifically watch where Jesus is buried and how he is laid. Chapter 24, we see the women are the first ones to discover the tomb. They're the first witnesses of the resurrection. They go and tell the other disciples. And in chapter 24, verse 10, Luke specifically mentions, you want to check it? Go ask Mary of Magdalene. Go ask Joanna. Go ask Mary. Remember, it's Mary, the mother of James. That's the one you can go ask. She was there. Again, notice the very specific specificity that he uses but while this doesn't seem maybe strange to us and we can read oh these women were involved okay that doesn't mean a lot to us in the 21st century this would have been shocking in the first century every morning a jewish man would wake up and praise god thank you god that i'm not a gentile and i'm not a woman that's the prayer 
of a Jewish man. Women were not given important roles in the first century Jewish culture, and no woman was considered an acceptable witness in a court of law. That's just how it was. So see, when we read it, we just read women. Okay, they read it. Why is Luke using these women? This is crazy. So if you're going to write a fictitious story about a man rising from the dead that you want to be accepted by the public, you would not have women being used in such a prominent role. So the very prominence that women are given in the crucifixion account, which is extremely anti-cultural, can only be explained by the very proof of the resurrection, that he truly raised from the grave, and Luke is bringing all the details to account for that. So we see that Luke has involved different people in showing us who is at this uh, death and resurrection, But it's interesting to note the perspective of each of these people, too. So we'll look at the women, and then we'll look at the men. If you look in verse 54 of chapter 23, it says, Then, it says, It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So it's Sabbath. Sabbath begins at 6 p.m. Friday, goes to 6 p.m., Saturday. During that time, no work is to be done. They rest. It's a way that they're to honor God. They're to worship Him. They're to remember uh, who God is and how He has brought them out of, out of Egypt and the giving of the law. And so Jesus is simply wrapped in a linen cloth at this time. There's no time to put the spices on Him. It's Sabbath. It's nearing the Sabbath So they just wrap him in a cloth, lay him. The women see exactly how he's laid, and then notice what it is that they go do. Verse 56, they return and prepared spices and ointments. And then what we see in these spices and ointments, they're used for the slowing of the decaying process. That's the point of them, and they're for the anointing of the body. Chapter 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week, so now this is Sunday, Early in the morning at dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. So think about this. It's early Sunday. These women rose to go to the tomb where they hoped to finish a burial process. These women are not thinking resurrection. They're not singing because he lives. They're not, th- they're not singing, oh, mighty to save. They're not, they're not gathering the crowds. They're not going door to door. Come with us. you got to see. We're going to go to the tomb and it's going to be empty. He said he would rise. None of this is happening. They're going with the perspective, the expectation, Jesus is dead. We're going to go finish the burial process. And in fact, these women are so troubled and distraught over this that they're not even thinking clearly. Now, the reason I say that is because in Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 3, on the way to the tomb, one of them finally goes, um, who will roll away the stone from us for the entrance of the tomb? So you get that. They're, they're so distraught they go we need to make the spices so they make the spices when you go to the tomb on the way to the tomb they're going there's a big rock like how are we going to move this they have no expectation of the resurrection they are not thinking that the tomb will be empty so let's turn now and look at the men 
We know the women have discovered that Jesus is risen. The angels appear to them. They remember what Jesus said. They rush off and go tell the men. Verse 11, after hearing what the women have said, we read, but these words seem to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. Who do these disciples remind you of? Richard Dawkins. You ever think that? Like Richard Dawkins says, the resurrection's a fairy tale. It's Jack and the Beanstalk. The disciples, Peter, James, John, the very closest ones to Jesus, hearing about their resurrection, they say, oh, this is a little, this is a little fairy tale. These women must not have opened up the windows and doors when they were making these spices. Didn't have proper ventilation. Got a little high. You hear? Like this is what they're thinking. This is not a stretch. They're wondering, these women are crazy. These ointments have gone to their head and now they're thinking that Jesus has risen from the grave. So don't miss this. The first skeptics of the resurrection are Jesus' closest followers. Does this seem strange to you? None of Jesus' followers, men or women, thought Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Is this the way you would write if you were trying to convince the world Jesus did not actually rise from the dead? Is this the way you would write that? That everyone who followed him thought he was dead. No one had the expectation. Is this a fictitious account? And yet, what's incredible, if we fast forward to the book of Acts, which is kind of part two of Luke, Luke 1 is the life of Jesus, uh, and, or Luke, Luke is the life of Jesus, part two, the book of Acts is the resurrection, resurrected Jesus and the sending out of his church. And what we see there is that Jesus commissions his followers, the disciples, and us as well, to go and spread the good news of the gospel. And what we see is that the disciples, at the expense of of their own lives endure persecution as they share the gospel. The apostle James will be beheaded. Peter will be crucified upside down. John will be boiled in oil and exiled on the island of Patmos. So what happens from from chapter 24 where they say, this is an idle fairy tale, to these men are enduring persecution, torture, and death for the gospel. Were these men so dedicated to a made-up fairy tale that they endured persecution and death? Or is the more plausible truth that Jesus has risen from the grave, they've seen the risen Messiah, their faith has been in them, their lives have been transformed, and now they go out by faith in Jesus to tell the world of this truth? That's what we have to wrestle with, right? You either believe the account as it's given to us, or you must come up with another historical, feasible alternative that makes sense of the birth of the church. So now let's switch, and let's go back to the empty tomb where we'll look at the resurrection foretold. What we see here in the first 12 verses of chapter 24 is the first of three stories. Now, now, We're going to go through these three stories, one this week, and the next two over the next two weeks, and and they all follow the same pattern. There's people are perplexed, 
there's a rebuke, there's instruction, and then there's witness. Those are, that's the pattern in each of these stories. So we're just going to look at, at the one that's given to us today in the first 12 verses. We'll begin with perplexed. The women thought they were going to find a big stone in their way. Read in verse 2, the stones rolled away. The tomb was empty. Jesus is not there. So verse 4, they're perplexed about this. Like, come on, that's kind of funny, right? Like, that's all he writes. Like, if you go to a tomb, or let's say we go down the street, we have a loved one, we go to the gravesite, we're going to pay our respects today, and we see a big hole, a big busted up coffin, pile of dirt. I'm a little perplexed. Something strange happened here. I'm not quite sure what this is. Like, wouldn't you be perplexed? Like, something out of the ordinary has taken place. I like how Luke just writes, they're perplexed. Yeah, I'm perplexed. Thanks, Luke. Maybe build on that a little more. There's a rebuke. All of a sudden, we know there's two angels who stand by in dazzling apparel, and they offer a mild rebuke and a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? What are they saying? Why are you here? Why are you here? If you're looking for Jesus, you're at the wrong place. You're at the wrong address. Living people don't stay in tombs. Living people don't go in coffins. Why are you here? There's a rebuke here. It's mild, but it's a rebuke. What are you doing? And then they go into instruction. Verse 6, the angel said, He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And what do we read in verse 8? They remember. They remember what Jesus has said. Now notice, Jesus did not say on the night of his arrest, Things aren't looking good. I think I'm going to be crucified tomorrow. He says he's still in Galilee. Galilee is about 70 miles away. That's like forever away back then when you don't have cars. In chapter 9, verse 22, this is what Jesus says in Luke. While he's in Galilee, 70 miles away, a long time before he gets to Jerusalem. A long time before the events have culminated in his death. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So a long time before he ever gets to Jerusalem, he predicts with great accuracy who will betray him or who will have him killed and when he will rise. Then as he's in Jericho, which is still before he enters Jerusalem, in chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. 
This was not a man hours before his death, knowing he's about to approach the resurrect, approach the cross, saying, guys, I think I'm going to be crucified. It wouldn't take the Son of God to give that type of prediction. But he says this hundreds or 70 miles away, long time before he ever enters Jerusalem. How he'll die, how he'll rise, who will have him beaten so why is it important that Jesus prophesied of his own death and resurrection? We could give many things here. I mean, there's so much we could say here. But one, we can simply say the death and resurrection of Jesus has always been the plan. It's always been the plan. That's, that's one thing our Advent little video is showing. We, we get caught up in our stories, thinking the world's about us. But there's a much greater narrative that is happening. And that's about God creating a people for himself. And what we see is that culminates on the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at how the the Old Testament, how the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. But right now, I just simply want to say, Jesus came on a mission. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, again, this is Luke part 2. Peter, he gets up at Pentecost, and he says... This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What he says is, you guys killed him, but this was always by the plan of God. It happened by the definite plan and foreknowledge by God. Listen, before God created the world, the Bible tells us, that God knew that one day he would send his son to this earth so he would die on a cross so we who believe in him would be forgiven of our sins and given everlasting life. That's what the Bible is about. It's about how God reveals his glory in the sending of his son, that he would have a people that would live with him forever. And Jesus comes as that perfect sacrifice. The entire priestly Old Testament system is meant to point to Jesus is the greater priest, Jesus is the greater sacrifice. The gospel is about our great and glorious God saving us by becoming like us, dying for us, so that we could be with him forever. As I studied this sermon, I came across, a, a, or I studied this text, I came across a sermon, and, and a preacher said, we should want, or unbelievers should want this text to be true, and we should help them want it to be true. Now think about it. They should want this to be true. Why? Because if it's true, there's hope, right? How do you explain life, death, cancer, disasters, so many of the things that happen all in this world? How do you explain if you remove the gospel narrative? By chance? Luck of the draw? What hope is there? You can look at all their theories. If we don't have the gospel, there's no hope. But because of the gospel, we know that one day Jesus will return for all who have believed in him and will live with him forever. What we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus is a kind of first fruits. First fruits, when if you're a farmer and you, you begin harvesting, you bring out your first fruits. Your first fruits determine, they're a sign of what the rest of the harvest will look like. So if you've got crummy first fruits, you're going to have a crummy harvest. But if first fruits are good, if they're plump, if they're juicy, if they're large, then you know the rest of the harvest is going to look like this too. And so if the Son of Man rises in perfect righteousness and holiness, and he's the first fruit, 
all who believe in him will rise in with him in righteousness, in holiness, in perfection. And that is our hope, that one day when Jesus returns, we will be with Christ forever. And on that day, all pain, all suffering, all disease will end. All injustices will come to an end. All wars, all fights, all divisions will cease. All anger, all rage, all hatred, all jealousy will come to an end. All shame, all guilt, all hurt, all loneliness will be over. All earthquakes, all tsunamis, all tornadoes, all natural disasters will cease to exist. And we could just keep going on. We have so much hope because of the gospel. But the best news is that we will live with our God, with our King, forever in His grace. Ephesians 2, 7, it's one of my favorite verses. It says, for all of eternity, God will lavish his grace upon us through Jesus Christ forever. So when Jesus returns, that's not, okay guys, now you just come on into heaven and do what you want. It's the continual unleashing of God's grace upon us forever. My wife and kids love blankets and hot chocolate. My kids want hot chocolate every day. My wife, I don't even know how many blankets we have. Apparently, we always need blankets. Doesn't matter where they come from as long as they're soft, they're snuggly, they're fuzzy. We have blankets next to every seat, next to every couch. They're in every drawer, in every closet, they're under every bed, they're on every bed. You just run into blankets in our house. If you run short of blankets, come to my house. You'll have to fight her for them, but we have blankets. Might be slight exaggeration, but probably not much. My kids, though, because of this, they love snuggling up with warm chocolate or warm hot chocolate and having blankets wrapped around them. No matter what we do, that is what they love to have. And I was just thinking about this. It's maybe not the perfect comparison. But one day, we live in the very glory of God, and his warmth will, will fill us, and his warmth will cover us. Just as, as my kids and my wife, they love being warmed with the hot chocolate and warmed with the blankets around them, so the glory of God will fill us and surround us and warm our souls for all of eternity because in this earth, we know that there's darkness and there's despair, but because of the resurrection, a new day has dawned. And we know that. And one day the sun will return and his glory will rise upon this earth. And if you have believed in him, you'll be brought into his presence forever. And if you have not believed in him, then the scripture is very clear that you will suffer for all of eternity. And I was recently reading a description of the suffering and it was a simple way of just, of just saying the judgment will be falling forever you'll be falling and you'll be falling and you'll be falling and after a hundred years of falling you'll be no closer to the end after a million years you'll be no closer to the end of falling in this judgment of God and experiencing his wrath it is the external fall the eternal judgment of God will be upon you but one thing we see 
is that through the death and resurrection of God, is the desire of God to love and to forgive all who come to him in faith. What we see is God's determination to show that all who come to him in faith will be received, will be forgiven, will have the arms of God wrapped around them for eternity. And so while we might have friends that do not believe, they should want this to be true. And we should help them to want this to be true by the very way we talked about it. And so one thing I want to ask today, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You might be here today, you might not have believed in Jesus. And I ask you, have you believed? Do you have the hope of eternal life with God? You might have questions. That's okay. Take comfort. Who else had questions in our text? The disciples had questions, right? The women come, Jesus is risen. No, he didn't. Like, let that comfort you. The people who walked closest with Jesus did not just jump up and say, yeah, he did. But they wrestled with it. And so, Christian, if you're here too, if you're like me, and, and you witness to people, and sometimes they don't believe in Jesus as fast as you want them to, rather than getting angry with them and impatient with them, let's be gentle and patient. If it took the disciples some period of time, then it's going to take others as well. But let that not mean that we don't show there's urgency. There is urgency. Let us urgently plead. But let us also do so with patience. If you're an unbeliever, I want to urge you to remember, you must come to a decision about the resurrection. It's not enough to say, I just don't believe. As Tim Keller said, the Christian is not the only one who must come with the burden of proof. If you believe Jesus did not rise from the grave, what is the alternative? What is the basis for your reasoning? I urge you to read the scriptures and to simply say, God, if you are real, help me to believe. Help me to, be, help me to understand. And I promise you the Spirit will answer that. Lastly, there's witness. This is what all of them have. All the stories here end. The women run with joy to the disciples. All three stories end. The men on the Maus Road, they run back to the disciples. At the end of chapter 24, when Jesus tells them, my spirit will, will fill you, you will go to the ends of the earth. And what do we do? We all tell people about the resurrection of Jesus. The only proper response to the resurrection of Jesus is to tell people about the resurrection of Jesus. He's the hope of the world. The resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus is the only one who forgives sins. The resurrection proves that there's life after death. This world is not all that there is. The resurrection reveals the desire of God to save all who will come to him in faith. I want to encourage you. We're called to share the gospel. And we're coming to the Christmas season. What better time is there to share the gospel? And, and I do want to say, this is an easy time. And I know easy doesn't mean it just flows off your lips. But this is an easier time to share the gospel just simply because of where we live we live in America where Christmas is celebrated, where people know we buy gifts, we have Christmas trees. People often gather at candlelight services or will even attend a church service, even if they don't go the rest of the year. There's just this idea that something is happening here, and as Christians, we can help give that meaning to them. I encourage you, invite them to the Christmas Eve service. I encourage you to invite them that all the gifts that we buy they're simply a shadow of the much greater gift that has been given in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
we sing songs like joy to the world, the Lord has come, let the earth receive her king. I'm not singing it. I just read it to you. But we sing songs like that. As Christians, let us show the joy to the world that we have, right? We have a joy. If the resurrection is true, how do we not share that joy around Christmas or any other time of the year? Think about it. Doesn't it seem odd to not share that joy? If a man truly rose from the grave, should we not share it? If you have buried a loved one and three days later that loved one came back to life, would you keep it a secret? Would you not tell other family members? Would you not tell the people you work with? Would you not tell the people who attended the funeral with you? Yes, you would. It's okay to nod your head. Of course we would. How much greater if the Son of Man has resurrected from the grave that we who believe in Him will all rise from the grave. So I want to encourage you, let us share the gospel. That the truth of this scripture fill your heart, comfort you, embolden you, strengthen you, And let us remember that we have the Spirit to share this gospel. And let's let's give the gospel this season. Tell it to your neighbors. Tell it to your coworkers. We're going to now come into communion where we will uh, specifically celebrate the fact that our Son, or that the Son of Man has come and died on a cross. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll ask the men to come forward and help. Our Father, We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you have given us your Bible. Your Bible inspired by by your spirit that you would illuminate our hearts that as we read it in faith, God, we would see you. And I pray that every single person here sees the truth of the resurrection, the truth of your word, the truth that you are the son of man, that you have died and risen from the grave and that we have the joyous privilege of sharing you with others god as we take the communion elements now remembering that while we celebrate while there is great joy that this free salvation that comes to us comes at a great cost it does come at your death it does come that it does come by the means of you coming as a man on this earth to be our substitute to stand in our place to take the wrath of our father so that we who believe in him would be forgiven god may we know that and god as we take these elements today may we celebrate you in your wonderful name jesus amen one i was gonna say we have one more minute but i think it just nope we still have one more minute so uh we'll fill up the entire time um i want to ask andrew to come forward uh many of you know at the annual meeting, uh, we announced that Andrew will soon be heading uh, back to California where he's going to continue his education in pursuit of going full-time into ministry. And this is actually his last Sunday with us. Um, and so we want to uh, just come alongside him and pray for him. He's been an amazing encouragement and blessing to me and I know to the church. Uh, and I think we've hopefully been a good encouragement and blessing to you. Uh, but it's been, uh, if you remember... Uh, he came on last year in September. Uh, Josh Pago was here. He was helping out with the youth. And Josh says, well, I'm leaving now to go to um, Africa Inland Missions. And we went, man, who's going to help us? Andrew here was here that day. And in God's providence, it worked out that he was able to come. And he's been an amazing blessing uh, with the youth, but also just here with us as a church, helping out 
in almost every way uh, possible, um, encouraging people, uh, visiting people. Uh, he spent a much deal of time visiting Sue and even taking her to the hospital a couple times. And so uh, um, I want us to, as, as we close, just pray for him. He's going back uh, for schooling, so let's pray uh, for his schooling. Let's pray that God continue to lead him and directs him uh, just exactly where God would be taking him uh, and we know that he's going to use you in mighty ways because he's already used you in mighty ways here. So we're just excited uh, to what God is doing. And I know the students, I know Jacob Baker's around here somewhere. And so I know the students have something. So if you guys want to come forward, and I know they have a gift for you. And Jacob has a speech planned. And Kate. Uh, we, also, we also have a gift here uh, from the church, uh, and that's for you. And can I just have, um, we're not going to limit this. If you want to, come up, and we're going to pray for them. Uh, so feel free, men, women, children, babies, uh, anyone who would desire to come forward, uh, come pray. And we just want to pray uh, just God's blessing on Andrew and just what an amazing gift he has been to us. And the fact that we know how God has used him so much here, that we know God is going to use him in, in mighty ways wherever he goes. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Um, that you work in us, you work through us in mighty ways. We thank you for how your body works, for the different gifts, the different uh, talents, uh, the different ways that you use each one of us, arms and hands and feet. And we thank you, God, for that. We thank you for Andrew. We thank you for how you have worked in his life and through his life. And God, we know that you are a faithful God, that you will continue to do that. And so, Lord, continue to equip him, prepare him, encourage him. We thank you, God, for the ministry that you have done through him in the lives of this church. And God, we ask that you would um, strengthen his faith, that you would give him uh, just a reasons, countless, to rejoice. Mostly, God, I know he does rejoice in this, in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so thank you, God, for saving him, for working in him. Thank you for this body uh, that, that has loved him and encouraged him and God, may you, uh, as we send him forth, God, I pray that, that it really would be ascending. And Lord, that you would encourage and strengthen him as he goes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day. Have a Merry Christmas.